Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. All right, second week we're jumping in. As Jessica was talking about how to pray, and I hope you do get into a group. We had one this morning. They meet upstairs, and they have wonderful refreshments, and there's also a Wednesday night online, which we're excited about, one at 4.30. There's still some room for today as well. It's in person, so if you have not, I'd just double encourage you to jump in because the content is fantastic, and it's really, I, I think, as as life-giving as, as anything we've done around here in a long time. So uh, how to pray is, is where we've been. Last week jumped in. We didn't start with the Lord's Prayer because Jesus doesn't start with the Lord's Prayer. He starts with this teaching on not just the how to pray, but the why to pray, where we start within that. And what he said in Matthew 6 was that when we have a performative, power-driven faith that is focused on outward appearances, focused on our perception by others, it misrepresents often the condition of our own hearts. And, uh, you know, as we said last week, luckily we don't have a problem in our country with performative religion for power. Uh, We got rid of that after a while. No, just kidding. Obviously, this is relevant to our world that Jesus is calling us out of a performative, power-driven faith expression. He tells us to pray in secret, not because we pray in secret and allow ourselves to completely privatize our faith. Jesus does not privatize his own faith. He practices his faith publicly. But in the secret, where our prayer begins is when we are truly present to God and present to ourselves. It's when we have removed ourselves from other people's opinions, our perceptions, our projections, our performance, and we're just with God. And more than anything, that's what God wants what God desires in us. And our prayer, more than anything, is just us, to be with us. It's true of prayer. It's true of our whole faith journey. That's where he begins in his teaching on prayer. And after he lays this groundwork that we just looked at there, he moves us into the beginning of the heart of his teaching. He says, this then is how you should pray. Paul's there, because remember, what we talked about last week was that in his time, in the the first century, as he's saying these words for the first time, as a rabbi, the people who would follow you would have a prayer that not only was a prayer of theology, a model prayer, but was also a prayer of identity. Each rabbi had their own prayer that they would uh, teach their, their, their students to pray, to identify who they were. So when we're praying these words, remember once again, this is not just a prayer of theology. It is a prayer of belonging. It is a prayer of identity. So he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. These are the words we begin with today, the words that begin to lay the foundation for everything that we're studying together. Our Father in heaven. Those four words are simple, but there is a lifetime of theological, devotional truth that we see here unfolding before us. One word here that is easily, though, easily just ran right past when we start studying this is this word, our. Notice he does not say, my Father. He does not teach us to say, my Father in heaven. He does not teach us to say, give us, give me today my daily bread. 
He does not teach us today, lead me not into temptation. From the very first word of what we're being taught to prayer, we are being pushed outside of ourselves. The Lord's prayer is relentlessly and is intentionally communal. It is drawing our attention outside of ourselves into something bigger. And it's important to know this. As we pray our Father, when we say our, this is not personalized and it is not possessive. It's not saying our father because he belongs to us. Now we live in one of the most intensely individualistic cultures in human history, don't we? So to pray our father, it can easily be misunderstood or misrepresented as us taking God for our own. In our church vernacular growing up, it was always good to talk about having a personal relationship with God. Now, Let's be clear. Salvation happens, is experienced personally. God saves us. It is a miracle. God saves us and sees us and knows us and chooses us as individuals and redeems us. But he doesn't just save us from something. He saves us into a family. He saves us into a new identity that we share as sons and daughters. He is our father, but he does not belong to us. He is our father. We're saved into this family that we call church, fellow sons and daughters along the journey. We talked about baptism. We've talked about this. And when we're baptizing people, we're dipping them into the water, buried with Christ, raising them up into new life. This symbol that for thousands of years was not just an outward expression of what happened to us personally. It was a communal experience of saying to ourselves and to one another, I belong to something new now. I now share a faith with others. He is not just my father. He is our father. And because of this, because praying to our father is not a possessive claim, it's not to wield God then as our weapon or our mascot. God does not belong to us as our mascot to put up on our agenda to present to the world. He is not a weapon against those that we do not agree with. Stanley Hauerwas writes on this. He says, when we say our, we're not being possessive. This God will not be our property. Many a person have come to grief attempting to domesticate God as a cheerleader for the American way or as a cosmic Federal Express. We say our because of the astounding recognition that this God, the one who created the universe and flung the planets into their courses, the great God of heaven and earth has willed to become our God. Before we reached out to God, God reached out to us and claimed us, promised to be our God, promised to make us God's people. This is what we were praying earlier. That we belong to something bigger than us. I love that as we pray our Father in heaven today, we join in with high church Anglicans in Scotland this morning. We join in with charismatic Pentecostals in South America, with traditional Catholics in Ethiopia, with house church revolutionaries in Iran, all across the world, little old us in the Lyric Theater on fall break weekend together, we join in something so, so, so much bigger than what we see in this room. And because of that, because we all make this same declaration, we pray those words, our Father. And notice here, not our God, not our Lord. Jesus is intentionally using this language and teaches us to call him Father. 
This is familial language. And it's important to acknowledge this, this language, I understand, as we call God Father, it can be difficult for some of us because some of us have had strained or broken relationships with our father or with our parents altogether. So the image of the father we have experienced projected on God is a difficult idea to fathom, distorted experience that have shaped us in the past to where when we think of and speak these words, we understood and remember a father who was a tyrant. And so maybe that's what God is like. Or maybe God, our our father, our earthly father was was absent, either literally or emotionally from our lives. And so when we think about God, maybe he's there, but he's not really there. We project those things onto God when we call him Father. And so it's important for us to understand on this basis that how we know our earthly fathers, Jesus did not tell us to call God our Father in order to project our experiences onto God, but actually to experience and project God's character on how we understand fatherhood, which is a massive difference. Justo Gonzalez, one of my favorite scholars, he writes about this. He says, the image of God as Father is useful in that it points to a God who gives us life, who protects us, and who provides for our needs. It speaks of a personal God who relates to us as persons. Rather than saying that God is like an earthly father, we would do much better to say that earthly fathers should take God as a model of parental love, a love that God is constantly pouring out on his sons and his daughters. This is massively important for us, for those of us who have had painful, broken, hurting relationships with our fathers or even our mothers as we present God as that parental person in our life. A lot of us, in praying these words, are slowly but surely relearning that word Father all over again. Relearning God as Father, the one we've longed for. Relearning the Father that is the very best of what we hope to be as earthly fathers. God, our Father, who provides and protects and is always present and at work. And know this morning, friends, that if that is you, if that's part of your story that God, our Father, is patient with you as you wrestle through those emotions, wrestle through those experiences, as you continue to relearn his character and not project the broken experiences we have onto him. God is patient. And as we understand God as, as Father, in the context of prayer, this necessitates for us as a, as a church family, as, as followers of Jesus, into a, a real paradigm shift. Because if this is what God is like, that shapes how we pray. Hopefully you know this. The character of God himself informs the way we speak to him. And so if you understand God as a tyrant or as a distant, unrelated figure in your life, you will pray from those places. You will pray in fear You will pray without expectation. You will pray as ritual and not as relationship. And so I want to close today pointing towards four real identity paradigm shifts that we are seeing as we understand God as Father and pray from that. First one is this, is that as we understand him as Father, we move from anonymity to identity. We inhabit in this world this this identity-starved 
continuously searching culture that is always looking around every corner for a mirror, something that shows us who we are. I was just reading about this this week, about the exhaustion that many of us face in a world that says you have to determine who you are and no one outside you can give you any sense of that identity. How exhausting that is and how you have to continuously perform just for yourself to know that you're keeping up. But what we find when we pray our Father is that our identity has always been secure. We have always had and known who we are because God has always held and known who we are. Before we look around anywhere, before we perform or look outward towards any sort of source of identity, we have been called the sons and daughters of God. That is who we are. We do not have to provide or to look outward to find this. This is bestowed upon us. Identity is not built. Identity is not bought. Identity in the kingdom of God is bestowed, is spoken on you. You have that spoken over you as sons and daughters of God. First John 3 says, see what great love the Father has lavished, that word lavished, overflow on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Our identity, I'll say it again, it is not built. It is not bought. It is bestowed upon you. You have that secure today. And when we pray our Father, we pray remembering afresh every time, I am a son and daughter of God. We're praying from a God who is the God who knows who we are. And because of this, the second paradigm shift is moving from isolation to intimacy. To pray to our Father as as sons and daughters of God, when we inhabit that identity that we have always had in Him, we pray to a God who is near in His love. Not just near, not just near to us, but open and available to us. We're approaching God, not from a distance, not from the grandfather up in the sky, but as one who is near to the brokenhearted, as one who says, I am with you always. That is the God to whom we pray, to whom is close to us. Now listen, when you are close to someone, you don't protect yourselves with some sort of formality in your language. When my kids want something, they don't come up to me and say, dear father, may we ravage the kitchen and eat four boxes of cereal in one day? Would thou be okay with that? They don't do that. They come boldly before me, knowing that even when these requests are going to be denied, even when these requests are absurd, that their father is at least going to receive and listen. There is an expectation that both my presence and my care as a father is not going to leave when this request is made. And so when we know and when we pray, God, our father, we know that this is a God in his fatherhood that is near to us and ready to receive even our absurd requests, even our boldness as sons and daughters. In fact, we would do far better in prayer to act like bold, absurd little kids than we would to bring the formalities that we think will please him 
with our fancy words and our postures. Part of what we said this past week in Matthew 6, and Jesus is teaching, the last verse in there said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Listen to that. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Sit with that. Now, we can say that's true from a place of sovereignty and that God knows all things, and so he knows what you need. There is another way to understand these words, I believe, and it's because God knows what you need before you ask him because God is already close enough to see the need. God is already close enough in his fatherhood to stand in the midst of the need and see it oftentimes before we do. He knows what we need before we ask him. And that's not just because he is sovereign. It is because he is near and he is father. That's good news. And it empowers us then, a third paradigm shift. We move from, from scarcity to abundance. This is something I've been wrestling through a lot. We think about the story, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. There are these two brothers, and they each miss the abundance of the father that's right in front of him. The younger brother, he, he goes and he squanders the wealth, squanders the inheritance, basically says, Father, I don't care if you're dead. Just give me your stuff. Give me your money. I'm going to go and take it and live my life. He blows everything, and he returns. The older brother, though, he never leaves. He just stays and resents his brother, resents the, the, the freedom that he had, the, 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 the failure that he, he had brought before his family, the shame that he brought upon everybody. Both of these brothers, both of them are, are living in this place of missing entirely what the father is offering them. Listen to these words of the older brother. This is some of the saddest words in the scripture. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. You see that? That's scarcity. That is saying the father's abundant love for my brother comes at the expense of his love for me. It is saying that when God blesses others, it is at the expense of my blessing. And so there's only so much to go around. So if everybody else gets it, I'm not going to get it. If other people experience his abundance, that must mean I am not. That's the mindset of the older brother. And the father responds, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is Everything he's been wanting, all the things he's crying out for, all the resentment and the anger and the bitterness, when everything he needed was already there. Both this younger brother who's in rebellion and this older brother who's living out of his religious fervor, all of his obedience and his self-righteousness, they miss that the father's provision actually flows out of his presence. The abundance of God is, is irreducibly Relational. God is providing needs not only because he has the ability to provide for us, but because he's actually near to us as our father. The younger brother misses the abundance because he takes the stuff and moves away from his presence. The older brother misses it because he's in his presence and thinks he doesn't have anything. Both of them miss that the father has been near and abundance has been available all along. If they could just see it. And what? real abundance was 
was the presence of their father. Because where their father was, there's always abundance. Where the father's present, there is always enough to go around. Where the father is there, provision is never a question. I don't have to either run away or I don't have to be resenting and bitter towards the world around me because I know that my father is here. Something happens in us when we know this identity. And out of that identity, we live into the peace of this intimacy. And from that intimacy, we live into the abundance of his presence, that there is always enough to go around. This is the character of the Father. And then there's a one final paradigm shift I believe we see in this. As we live into those things, we move from apathy to empathy. Because as sons and daughters of God, we we have this identity that then empowers and sends us into the world and not away from it. You move away from the world when you live in scarcity because you're afraid that the world's abundance means I'm not going to have enough. But when you are secure in what the Father has provided for you, when you know that you live in abundance, you are not afraid to move outward in love. The first time we see the idea of God as Father in the Scriptures actually happens almost towards the very beginning. Exodus chapter 4, as Moses is confronting Pharaoh, he demands that his people are freed from slavery, and he calls the Israelites God's firstborn son. And this is significant because in that Jewish culture, for the firstborn, this is the one who bears the identity of the family. This is the one who has the authority of the father. This is the one who enjoys the inheritance of his family. As first century Jews, when you pray then, our father, it wasn't just calling on the polite, distant grandfather in the sky. This is the liberating God of Exodus who is our father. This is the redeemer of Israel, the one who rescues and restores. That's who our father is, a God who is on the throne. It's why we pray our father in heaven, because in heaven there is a throne that God has not left, that God still inhabits in his power. He is our father in nearness, but in that nearness there is power. This is why Jesus is crucified, if you notice, on Passover. The Lamb of God, whose blood saved us from death, liberated liberated us from bondage. The Father sent his Son as the beginning, we see in this story, of a new exodus. He is freeing the sons and the daughters from death. He is restoring all of creation back to himself. Jesus knew this when he came, and yet astoundingly, As he is sent by the Father, he says to the disciples in John 20, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And so just as God's exodus plan, this new exodus of freedom, this Father's love, Father's heart to bring people out of slavery and into freedom, he sent Jesus for that. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm sending you for the same thing. We're sent like Jesus into the world on that same mission of liberation and power and provision in this rhythm together. We talked about this a few weeks ago. One of our shared rhythms is participation. We're sent to join God in his restoring work where he already is at work in our world. We don't take God places where he he is not. We don't call places absent of God. We know he's already present and at work, and we join his restoring work where we are. And T. Wright encourages us in this. He says, when we call God Father, we're called to step out 
as apprentice children into a world of pain and darkness. We will find that darkness all around us. It will terrify us precisely because it will remind us of the darkness inside our own selves. But if, as the people of the living creator God, we respond to the call to be his sons and daughters, if we take the risk of calling him father, then we are called to be people, to be the people from whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. So when we pray, our father, this is a commission. This is marching orders as his sons and daughters to be the voice and the hands and the feet of his restoring love in the world. I think as we understand taking this back to the prodigal son that there are sons and do- sons and daughters who are experiencing that same lostness, that same scarcity, that same misrepresentation of God's character that is keeping them away. We remember that God still desires sons and daughters to come home. He still desires to celebrate when people remember that there is abundance and come back to him. He still longs to invite older religious brothers like many of us to come and remind ourselves that everything we have always long for is right in front of our face. I believe as a church we're, we're called to be this picture of the open arms of the Father for those who are still on their way home. The picture so many of us have of God is the opposite of a good father. It is a God whose anger burns, who barely puts up with us. But if we remember the story, we remember that the father, before the younger son even sees him, the father's already running towards him. The father is making himself ashamed in that culture in order to run after and to welcome his son home. So when we pray, our Father, we're joining in. We are becoming with God the open arms of those around us who still need to come home. And yet I think in that, oftentimes we create a false dichotomy. We we create these competing values and we condemn the older brothers of the world. The older brothers who sit in our seats and our pews in our churches every week. The older brothers who, in their righteous anger, believe they're protecting something worthy of making their father proud when that pride is already there. So in that, I believe we are called to be this picture of the patient, persistent welcome of the father to those convinced that they've already arrived. I want to do a good job, and I want to say I want to do a better job as we openly and honestly critique the church that needs so much help in this nation in particular, that we remember that God the Father does not reject those we often reject. And in that critique and in that love that we have for the church, we're calling them to faithfulness and not pushing them away in condemnation. Christians need the gospel. Christians need the gospel. I can think of one Christian that needs the gospel, and he's right here. And I guarantee you all you do too. And so as we pray our Father in this commissioning, we're not only praying to welcome the rebellious 
those who seem far away home. We're also welcoming those who sit right in front of us to remember that everything they've always longed for is right here. And so as we close today, I wanted to do something a little different and just take a few minutes in silence. So if you bow your head and close your eyes with me, As we move from anonymity to identity, as we move from isolation to intimacy, as we move from scarcity to abundance, and as we move from apathy to empathy, I want to pray into the Father's heart. So this morning as we close, I want you to hold within your mind here for a second someone that you know is either running or missing what's right in front of their face. Maybe that's a friend, a family member. Maybe it's you. Just take a second to pray, just a silent prayer, offering them up to our Father. Father, may we never stop making room at the table. May you light a fire under us. May you be the thorn in our side that reminds us when we've closed off ourselves from those that you long to welcome home. And for those of us, God, who have missed what's right in front of their faces, for those that we are often encouraged to condemn. Forgive us for casting out sons and daughters that you love. May we be the welcoming presence, the open arms of the Father for those that we desire to see come home because we already know you desire for them to come home. We love you, God. We thank you that as we gather, we do so with you in your abundance and in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.